Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing today? Good. It's Christmas season. That's what I thought. <laughs> How many of you guys like Christmas season? Why didn't you cheer a second ago? I feel like something in that went wrong. How many of you guys actually kind of don't like Christmas season? It's okay to be honest. Yeah. The honest people always have their hands a little lower. Like, <laughs> it's like, ah, yeah. No, I, I think for a lot of people, I think the Christmas season is sort of this magical time, right? It's this time of family traditions, and it seems like the, the whole uh, culture is headed towards one thing for a moment, right? In a, in a time where it feels like we can't get our culture to all think about one thing in one direction ever, there's a four or six weeks leading up to Christmas where at least everywhere you go, it's all about Christmas, right? If you go to Home Depot, it's like October, but the rest of us start about now. Christmas is kind of magical for some people. Like, I remember whenever I was a kid, it was, it was pretty magical because uh, obviously, now I'm a little biased, I got presents. Right? That made Christmas kind of cool for me as a kid. And, and I'm an only child, so I probably got everything I wanted. I, I felt that... Um, I felt that, you guys. <laughs> that disdain from all the other people that are like, oh... I know, that guy, right? But, but seriously, like I, I loved Christmas probably because uh, as a kid, it's hard not to. Like I think very few kids don't like Christmas. But have you noticed that it, um, at some point it kind of wore off? Like at some point it kind of fades. The magic of Christmas kind of fades. For me it happened, you know, as I turned into an adult, it sort of wore off after a while. And then I got to be a dad, and it's like it all started all over again, parents in the room. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? There's, it's actually like more magical because it's your kid's experience. There was something special about being a father and being able to facilitate that, that experience. That, that like whenever I was a kid, we would go driving around looking at Christmas lights. That was one of my favorite things to do with my extended family. And so we would take our kids and we'd do that and we'd watch their eyes light up. And then if it ever snowed, like snowing at night in December with the street lights, and there's like something comforting about that. And so if it was ever snowing, we'd make sure to point it out to our kids and try to extend the magic into their life. And then there's this other problem that even though it faded for me, I wasn't ready for the moment that it would fade for them too. Right? And so I had been enthralled with Christmas again, as a parent, and then I remember when it began to go downhill. I remember one, uh, one night, it, was, it may have even been Christmas Eve, but it was really close to Christmas, and we let our kids go to bed and get to sleep, and then we surprised them and we woke them up. And we had printed out Polar Express tickets. You guys remember the movie, The Polar Express? We printed out tickets. We had got them all their own robes. We wrapped them in robes, and we gave them their own thing of hot chocolate. And we're like, let's go drive around town and sing songs and look at lights in the snow. And they were like, oh. <laughs> I was asleep already. <laughs> right? like, they went, but they like drug their feet and complained the whole time. Like, when are we going to be done? And it was at that moment that it was like the magic had sort of started to fade. It was sort of tragic for me again, right? There's, there's something about the Christmas season that points out some of the things that are wrong in life too, right? Like that's not the only reason that people don't like Christmas. It's not just because it faded. 
For some people, even though it's a buildup on our calendar, it's a buildup for six or seven weeks to something disappointing, to a, a void in their life. Like for, for some people, what's supposed to be a season of hope ends up being a reminder of what's broken. Right? I think there's a lot of brokenness that the holidays can amplify. And a mom that at one point found so much purpose and happiness when her kids would crawl up into her lap and they'd spend time every evening reading a story and now she goes into their room and tries to invite them to hang out and just watch a movie with her, but they've got friends that they'd rather hang out with and they don't have time for her. Right? Or a grandma whose house used to be the center of Christmas. Everybody came over and it was, it was fun days and days and, and things would happen. And, and then now, years later, it's moved on to somebody else's house and she wonders, is it even worth decorating? I think a loss like a death is sometimes felt the most at the holidays too. I think the Christmas season, while it's supposed to be fun and magical, and I think a lot of people experience it that way, I think it's also true that it exposes what's already broken in our life because it reminds us what's not going to be happy this year, what's not going to feel right. See, the world is already broken. We just feel it more at Christmas sometimes, right? I hope I'm not spoiling the plot for you that our world is kind of screwed up right? And happiness is fleeting. Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of hard to stay happy. I don't know about you. I struggle with keeping happiness. In fact, it's amazing how quickly my mood can change. I know you guys are like, Jason can't possibly be moody. I had a friend in my office this week, and I told him, I'm like, I'm like sometimes I struggle with like, not feeling connected to my emotions, like I'm kind of apathetic. And he's like, you're the one who cries on stage. <laughs> I do have a hard time sometimes with how quickly my mood changes. Uh, I'll give you an example. You guys all, we had Thanksgiving just recently, right? Hopefully you guys love Thanksgiving. I do. The reason I love Thanksgiving, though, is the food. Right? Like, I mean, I like being around people. Don't get me. If you're here and we celebrated Thanksgiving, I didn't mean it like that. But <laughs> the food is the part that I want, right? And, and what happened this year is we actually took over to my aunt's house, we took all of our Tupperware, right? Intentionally ready for the leftovers. Because really, the meal itself is good, but the leftovers are the part that really matters because something, it changes and gets better in the fridge. Have you ever noticed? And you get to pick and choose. There's no guilt whenever you don't put the cranberry sauce on. <laughs> like, you just pick the things you want out of the fridge. We brought all that stuff home. And for a week, it sat in my fridge just speaking to me. Jason, I'm waiting. You're going to love it. Eat me. But we didn't have any turkey. I couldn't eat the leftovers without the turkey. I waited a week. We finally made another turkey to go with it. And I had waited all that time. My happiness was in the fridge, delayed for me, right? <laughs> Waiting for it. We had one meal with that new turkey and all the things I wanted. And then after dinner, I turn around for like 30 seconds and I see my wife scraping all of my leftovers into the garbage disposal. <laughs> 
and my heart sank. <laughs> in that moment, I threw a fit. I don't know, I'm probably the only adult in the room that would admit that we throw fits. <laughs> okay. I, I turned into a child in that moment because I saw my happiness literally going down the drain. Like, not the sweet potatoes. And so I, I started like tossing dishes onto the counter and mumbling under my breath about how I was going to eat that. And started scrubbing the, the counter a little harder next to Christy. Right? <laughs> it's amazing how quickly what I was supposed to be enjoying turned into something that made me mad. Right? It's amazing how quickly, now that's silly, right? but it's amazing how quickly our mood can change. It's amazing how quickly our outlook on life can change too. I don't know how many of you guys have changed or lost a job during this time of inflation, but the first time you can't pay a bill, it's amazing how your outlook on life changes, right? So here's the thing. I think we're all searching for, trying to find lasting satisfaction, but it never lasts. Have you noticed? It never actually lasts. We're always searching for something that's going to stay with us, to, to leave us feeling satisfied, but we never actually find that thing, right? You, you finally got a new truck instead of a used one, and after about the second payment, you're like, eh, I like that other new truck, <laughs> right? See, there's this harsh truth that nothing satisfying seems to last, and happiness is fragile, and since nothing satisfying seems to last, and since happiness is fragile, what happens is one day we're up, and then the next day we're down. We're on this cycle of happiness, and what happens is we end up chasing the high points. Have you ever noticed? We end up chasing that happiness, and what happens is we end up manufacturing or manipulating or maintaining, or even recreating circumstances that made us happy. And what happens then is, when we're stuck in the valleys between those high points, it can feel hopeless. And sometimes you're in a valley and you don't even see another peak coming. Sometimes you're in a, a season that just feels hopeless, in this cycle of never finding anything satisfying, and now you don't even see anything on the horizon. And I bet you say, Jason, we came to church at Christmas season uh, not to be bummed out. <laughs> Lucky for you, we're actually going to study a passage today in Isaiah that was written specifically to encourage people that found themselves in a hopeless situation. It was an encouragement in the prophecy. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 35. We'll be there in a minute. Um, while you're turning there, I need to at least set the stage. Now, we've been in Isaiah for a few weeks, and so I'm, I'm not going to give you the maps and the different things that might help you understand where Isaiah is at, but I need you to at least understand the timeline. How many of you guys know uh, Israel was really bad at being good? Right? Like they were, they messed up a bunch. Have you ever noticed that it seems like Israel's story is a story of failure after failure after failure? And what happened is there was a point early where God said, look, if you, if you screw up enough, I'm going to have to spank you hard enough that you get the point. I'm going to bring in a foreign country and they're going to have to take you out of the land. They're going to take you away from this promise that I'm giving you into exile. And eventually it happened. 
Eventually, Babylon, a, a superpower in the area, came across the desert and destroyed Judah. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they took all of the Israelites captive, drug them across the desert to Babylon in 586 B.C. That's an important moment to mark on the calendar as we read Isaiah because much of Isaiah's prophecies are about God judging Israel and then God judging the nations and restoring Israel. But he wrote those prophecies 150 years before Babylon ever came. And so you can imagine what it felt like to be in Babylon and read Isaiah's words, some of them cutting like a knife and some of them meant to encourage. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to read one of the prophecies that was meant to encourage a nation that was stuck in captivity. And so what I want you to do is I want, as we go through this, I want you to imagine reading this as a captive in Babylon. That was their, their low point. That was the moment that the mashed potatoes got scraped and they started throwing dishes, right? And it goes like this, Isaiah 35, verse 1. It says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. So this encouraging prophecy starts out with this base understanding. Of course you're in the desert. Of course you know what a desert is. And, and, and you have to understand, Israel was really familiar with the desert. The desert is harsh. Right? We know. We have a desert right next to us, right? The desert is lifeless. It's ugly. I said that last night, and somebody literally snickered in the front row like I was insulting the desert. Like, it's ugly. It's difficult, right? I realize we drive around in four-wheel drive vehicles with air conditioning, but the desert is difficult and harsh and ugly. And I think Israel was familiar with the desert, right? They're surrounded by it on all sides. If you remember their story, they started out 40 years wandering in the desert after they left Egypt. They're familiar with how hard it is, and then they've been drug across the desert again. Some of you guys are familiar with the desert too. And I don't mean the one north of us. I mean, some of you guys are familiar with a wilderness in your life. Something that's hard. Something that's lifeless and ugly and difficult. See, we all have seasons like that where we're in a desert or an area of our life where it seems like it's impossible for life to live, right? And then Isaiah gives us this encouragement. And I don't know about you men in the room, but my heart just lit up when he started talking about flowers in the desert, right? I actually, I, I was reading this out loud in front of my wife, and I said, crocus? And my wife had to stop me, and she's like, it's not a crocus. It's a crocus. And then she started to tell me about it. She's like, do you know what that is? I said, I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a flower. And she started to describe it, and it's like yellow, or it could be purple, and blah, blah, blah. Like, she started describing this flower, and I was like, I don't care about the flower. 
I think what was culturally important back then misses the mark now, because honestly, I don't know about you guys, I don't care about a flower in the desert. But here's the idea. The idea is where it seems impossible for anything to survive, life is going to burst forth and it's going to flourish where it seems like it's supposed to be harsh and dead, it's out of that that God is going to do something beautiful. And then he keeps going. Verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. I love this. He gets right to the point. We're only three verses in, and he says, don't give up. God is coming for you. And see, I think what happens so often is that we get caught in this cycle of chasing happiness, and we get so caught then in those moments, those valleys of sorrow and pain, that we feel like we're alone, and we want to give up. And I love this encouragement here, but did you notice what he didn't say? He didn't say, you got this. He didn't say, you can do it. Right? I think our culture, if our culture had the opportunity to encourage us in a moment where we were down and hopeless, we might hear, you got this. Now, I have a story of a you got this moment I was uh, about 16, 17 years old, and I was up at Old Powderhorn snowboarding. I don't know if you know what Old Powderhorn is. It's like, uh, it was a ski resort next to Powderhorn that became a sled hill later, and it is the most amazing and terrifying place you can go in the winter. It's great and terrifying. And I remember being there as a teenager with my youth group from church. And so they were sledding. I was a snowboarder. So me and my snowboarder friends, we hiked up a little bit further, and we had built a really big kicker. That's a jump. Okay. We had built a really big jump, and then while we were looking at it, figuring out who was going to go first, my girlfriend starts walking up the hill, and my buddy leans over and he goes, you got this right? You should do this. You should show off. Show her what you've got. You got this. And so I remember just bombing down the hill. Okay, that's going fast. Sorry. I was going fast down the hill toward this jump. And right as I get to the jump, I make eye contact with my girlfriend. And I go off the jump and I grab my board. I don't remember what it was called. They got names for all the things. But I grab my board like way back here behind me and it looked epic. And then I forgot to let go. So I'm looking at her, she's looking at me, I'm way too high in the air for what I know how to do, and I, I forgot to let go of my board, and while I'm looking at her, I start seeing the snow, and face first into the snow right in front of my girlfriend, I went tumbling in a mess of tears into the woods. Sometimes you got this isn't good advice. And sometimes you got this is just another burden. You mean I've got this? Like I'm the only one? You mean I have to handle this on my own? And now we live in a culture of self-empowerment, right? We hear, you go, girl. 
right? We hear, you can do anything. You should do anything. And yet, what I love about this is that's not what Isaiah says at all. He says, God will come and God will save you. He doesn't say, you've got this. He doesn't say, it's going to be okay. You can handle it. You can't handle it. But God can. That is the gospel message. Some people even say that Isaiah is the fifth gospel. We see Jesus all over this book. And that is the gospel that you can't solve this mess on your own. In fact, all the other religions in the world are about people trying to climb upward, about trying to climb up to a law, trying to climb up to some self-empowerment thing to solve our own problems. And we're the only ones where God looked down and he said, I'll solve it. You can't. That's the gospel. Jesus came because you couldn't solve it. God moves. God solves. That's the encouragement. And then we keep going from there. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And so he says, God is going to come. And when the Lord comes, he comes with healing. And we saw that all over the Gospels, right? The first time that Jesus came, the Advent that we would call Christmas, right? The, the, we're celebrating Jesus coming to earth. And when he first came, the blind saw, and the deaf heard, and the lame were walking around, the mute were shouting for joy. And we still see this today especially on the frontiers of the gospel, where the kingdom of light is breaking into the darkness. We hear all kinds of amazing stories about the blind seeing and the mute speaking. God is still doing things because when the Lord comes, he comes with healing. Let's keep going. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground bubbling springs, in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And so he says, when the Lord comes, he's, he's going to come with healing, but not just for you, not just for people, but also for creation itself. <coughs> creation will be restored. You see, back in Genesis chapter 3, we broke it. Fill in the blank, whatever it is, right? It was perfect, and we broke it. Adam and Eve broke creation. See, in, in the beginning, there was this perfect environment, a perfect environment of relationships between people and their God, a shalom, peace. Everything was right and perfect, and the environment, literally the world around them was perfect too. And in a moment, it was broken. And then that brokenness wasn't just among people. It was also the environment itself. In fact, Romans 8 says that creation is groaning for the redemption that will come still. The world around us, this life 
that we live was never meant to be harsh and hard and lifeless. The environment or your family or your emotions were never meant to be harsh and lifeless. And this encouragement says that when the Lord comes, there will be a restoration of order, a restoration to way, the way it should be. And then he keeps going, verse 8. And a highway will be there. And it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on the way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. It says, there will be a way when God comes. There will be a way through this wilderness. There will be a way through this harsh environment, specifically for the redeemed, a way of protection. And then he closes his prophecy like this. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now Zion is another name for Jerusalem, especially whenever we're talking about a Jerusalem that's hoped for, right? And so he's saying that you're going to get to return. Things are going to be made right. You get to enter Zion again. Now, I want you to again imagine what the exiles in Babylon were feeling when they heard this prophecy. Because you know what happened? After about 70 years, they got to go back home. They got to go back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. But they faced so much opposition in doing that. Opposition on the road, opposition while they were working. They had rebuilt a lackluster temple that wasn't ever as good as it was before. The people were apathetic. In fact, some of the minor prophets go on to describe this moment as tragic and sad. See, because a prophet had seen the glory of God leave the temple before the exile, and then after it was rebuilt, it's like he never came back. There was no joy in that moment. But here's the thing. I think that they missed the theme of Isaiah 35. If we were going to take everything that we just read and we're going to boil it down to kind of one sentence, I think it would be that joy comes with the Lord. We see all through this thing references to joy. There will be joy and rejoicing in the desert, right? There will be joy whenever the mute can speak and shout. There will be joy everlasting whenever you enter Zion. But every bit of it is dependent on the Lord. There will be joy, but it comes with the Lord. And see, this prophecy began to unfold not at Israel's return from exile, but when their Messiah came 500 years later. See, the first advent of Jesus, this Christmas season that we celebrate, when Jesus came, he came with healing. Can you imagine what it was like to walk with your crippled daughter into a room and then to watch her jump and leap for joy on the way out. 
Can you imagine the joy that came with the healing? Imagine what it was like to see for the first time the joy that Jesus brought with him, right? And then he brought salvation. It says that God will save you, and when Jesus came, that's exactly what happened. And with it, the joy of our salvation. When Jesus came the first time, he brought with him joy. But he's coming again. Jesus is coming a second time. And when he comes the next time, He's going to restore the order that is still broken in this world. He's going to solve the mess. He's going to right the wrongs. He's going to bring justice to the wicked. And there will be joy that things are made right. Again. So joy comes with the Lord. And what happened here is, I think Isaiah, 700 and something years before Jesus, described the silhouette of a mountain peak in the distance, and he said, there will be a day when the Lord comes, and it will come with joy. But we realize that he actually saw two different peaks, right? I don't know if you've ever driven into the mountains, but from a distance you see these shapes, and as you get there, you realize that there's so much more depth to it. We realize that we're in the middle between those two peaks, and we're still waiting for him to come and make everything right. We're still riding that coaster of highs and lows. We still have deserts and wildernesses and brokenness. But can we be honest? As we wait for the Lord to come make things right, we aren't waiting the same way that they were waiting thousands of years ago. Right? Where they were in some forlorn country or behind bars or literally scraping by, right? In America in 2023, we're doing okay. I don't know if you've noticed. Right? We see the brokenness in our world, but it is dramatically different for us. Now, did you catch though? He says that when the Lord comes, he will provide a way through the wilderness, right? A way of holiness a way of protection and guidance to get you to Zion where it will be perfect. You know that Jesus said something real similar? Something that you're going to recognize out of John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now imagine a people who had read for years and years Isaiah 35. Imagine the God that wrote Isaiah 35 speaking it to him when Jesus says, I am the way. Isaiah 35, there is a way for the redeemed, and Jesus says, I am the way. I am that way. Through the wilderness, through the desert, through the pain and the sorrow. See, there is a way through the wilderness that will bring you the satisfaction that you're looking for. But it's a different path than the path that everybody else is on. See, everybody else is still chasing their own happiness. In fact, I'm going to read something to you that really describes what it looks like to chase our own happiness out of Galatians chapter 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, 
jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, I realize that list has some really extreme things on it, right? But if you boil that list down, everything on there is about me getting what I want, right? I know it's extreme, but the root there is that that is what it looks like when people chase happiness, when they put themselves at the center. And now this is in the middle of Paul's argument that we need to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. He goes on right after this to contrast this list of the acts of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. You guys know the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace. Okay, you know, okay. You know the first four. I get it. <laughs> Do you notice that it, right off the bat, right after love, it says joy. Like a fruit of the Spirit is joy. And yet, the fruit of chasing our happiness is a list of horrible things. I want to make an argument that happiness is counterfeit joy. Just like a counterfeit $100 bill, right? It looks very similar. In certain moments, if nobody's paying attention, you can spend that counterfeit bill. And both happiness and joy have this sense of like well-being and pleasure. Things are good. But happiness depends on my circumstances lining up which leaves me the burden of managing my circumstances to make sure that they line up. And that burden often takes me the opposite direction, into the valleys. But joy, joy is releasing that burden and trusting God to be God and to handle the things that you were never supposed to handle in the first place. And that releasing that burden, we get to experience joy, a satisfaction. See, it also comes as a fruit of God's Spirit in you. A few months ago, we talked about what it was like to be filled with the Spirit. The evidence of God's character in you. The fruit of the Spirit is Him in you. And when we're filled with the Spirit, we experience that fruit. When we're yielded to His control and we relax in Him, suddenly we find ourselves when we shouldn't have joy with joy or we shouldn't have peace, we have peace. And the more that we walk with the Spirit, the more we experience that fruit. The more that we listen and obey and navigate this life in his will instead of the one where we're chasing our own happiness, we experience more and more joy. But here's my fear. My fear is that it's going to be so tempting to settle for the counterfeit. You see, in our culture, unlike Israel's culture then, the pursuit and the opportunity to make myself happy for a moment is everywhere. It's baked in to our culture, right? We have such a convenient lifestyle that it's easy, I think, for us to be complacent and to settle for that counterfeit, to settle for the next high of happiness. But happiness will always be just a counterfeit of real joy. 
You see, happiness says when. And joy says even when. Happiness says when I finally make enough to buy a new car, then I'll be happy. When she acknowledges all that I do for her. When the kids get home for Christmas. When the divorce is final. Or when we get back from our honeymoon and we get to start our life together. Or when I'm not lonely. When I'm not stuck. When I'm not bored. Happiness says when. Joy says even when she ignores me. Even when the divorce is final, even when I don't know what to do in this season, I will trust the Lord and walk with him, even when. And then he gives you joy. Now, what I love about this is Jesus said something else that you're going to recognize, but I want you to hear it with a new burden in mind. Happiness and chasing it is a burden that keeps us stuck. And Jesus said this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Doesn't rest sound good? Doesn't rest from this cycle of having to chase my own happiness sound good? Right? The burden that you carry to manufacture, manipulate, maintain, or recreate the circumstances that make you happy. His offer is, I'll take that burden. I will handle that burden for you, and you can rest. See, joy is resting in the Lord That doesn't mean you ignore everything that's wrong in life, but you hand your burdens to God. You trust his goodness and his control. But the temptation is for us to... I think we would rather have control and a chance at happiness than to give up control and have joy. It's only when you see happiness for what it actually is, the counterfeit, It's made to keep you stuck in the wilderness. We said at the beginning, happiness is elusive, it's fragile, it's fleeting. And it leaves us dependent on the world around us. And Satan would love nothing more than for you to settle for the counterfeit of happiness and keep you stuck. Keep you in the cycle. Inevitably keeping you in the wilderness. I'm going to invite Winston to come up as we get close here to the end, I want to leave you with this thought that joy only comes from the Lord, but we won't experience it while we're chasing happiness. See, this Christmas season, our challenge is to relax and to trust God, to stop striving to create and manifest these perfect Moments that are going to make us happy. To stop fretting over what could be or what's missing or what's wrong. To stop grasping for our own happiness. As we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, 
and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, we need to take stock in the fact that he left us with his Holy Spirit in between the two and that we can have actual joy. But we're only going to get there if we pursue the one who brings the joy. Right? We need to stop worrying about when and start spending time with the God who says even when. Even when you're broken. Even when you're in the valley. I will walk with you. I will help carry the burdens. I can take control and give you joy in exchange. But only if you walk with him. So let me ask you guys a question as we close. What do you need to trust God with? More specifically, is there an area of your life where you're unhappy? Is there something that consumes all of your attention and your thoughts as you try to manage or worry about the outcome? Is there an area that you have of genuine need? Right? Joy comes with the Lord, but when the Lord comes, he brings healing. Do you need healing? Do you need restoration? Do you need free from loneliness, from depression, from your valley? What do you need to trust God with so that you can actually experience joy and get off this cycle of chasing your own happiness? Here in just a minute, uh, our ministry team is going to come up and uh, they're going to be available to pray over you and with you. I want this to be a, a place, a center for your healing, but also a center of, uh, of, of your life where you have a chance to say, God, I'm wrong, you're right. This is a time and an opportunity to set the stage for this entire Christmas season. For you to let go of your own pursuit of happiness and lean into him and experience his joy. Would you guys stand? I'm going to pray over you real quick. God, we're thankful for Isaiah's prophecy. We're thankful for the encouragement that we see a restoration coming and that we already get to experience joy. But we are sorry that we settle for the counterfeit and that we chase our own happiness and we manage our own life and we take upon ourselves a burden that you've already offered to carry. We're sorry and God, we invite you to lift it. For my friends in the room that need healing from that burden or healing in their body, God, we say, Holy Spirit, come. Come in this moment. Fill us anew that we might experience joy even when. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Again, our ministry team, if you're here, guys, would you please come forward and be ready? They'd love to pray with you. Uh, if you're going to leave, then uh, go blessed, all right? Have a good week.